Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. If you call someone a dirtbag, you might be insulting them for being dishonest, or you might be describing their lifestyle, the pursuit of an outdoor passion at the expense of more mainstream options and commitments. Have you ever dreamed of being a rock climber, living in a van, or becoming a rafting guide, through hiker, world traveler, or some other kind of nature-loving, adventure-seeking wanderer? My guest has written a handbook for making it happen. His name is Tim Mathis, and he's the author of The Dirtbag's Guide to Life, Eternal Truths for Hiker Trash, Ski Bums, and Vagabonds. Tim and I begin our conversation what it means to be a dirtbag, the origin of the term amongst the early rock climbers who explored Yosemite in the 1950s and 60s, and why Tim thinks the lifestyle embodies a countercultural philosophy. Tim then offers a window into why others might adopt this approach to life by sharing his story of how he personally became committed to dirtbagging. From there, we turn to the brass tacks of embracing a life centered on outdoor adventure and exploration, beginning with how much money you actually need to make it happen, and the kinds of jobs and careers that are conducive to it, including, perhaps surprisingly, the field of nursing. Tim also shares how he responds to criticism that being a dirtbag is an irresponsible way to live. We then discuss the effect dirtbagging can have on someone's relationships and whether this lifestyle is viable if you have a spouse and kids. And at the end of our conversation, we discuss how even if you're living a more freewheeling lifestyle, it's important to have a sense of meaning beyond traveling around and doing cool stuff and the three elements that go into finding that kind of meaning, which apply to dirtbags and non-dirtbags alike. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash dirtbag. All right, Tim Mathis, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Brett. It's good to be here. So you are the author of a book called The Dirtbag's Guide to Life, Eternal Truth for Hiker Trash, Ski Bums, and Vagabonds. So I think most people, they've heard the term dirtbag, but they've heard it as a pejorative, like that guy's such a dirtbag. But this book's about dirtbagging is actually a lifestyle. For those who aren't familiar with dirtbagging, what does that entail? You're right. The term dirtbag, I think it initially originated as sort of pejorative and it even in sort of the way it's applied in the way that I use it, it was initially applied to people in a pejorative way and they've sort of embraced it and and run with it as so often seems to happen. But yeah, the basics, I think if I, I think people who are familiar with sort of outdoor sports and the outdoor community will have heard the term dirtbag as a reference to like a certain type of person in the outdoor community. They're the type of person who I think traditionally, if you thought about these people, they're the people who basically quit their jobs and go pursue their their sport. So they're either climbers who quit their job and go live in Yosemite for the summer, or they're through hikers who go hike the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Crest Trail, keep sort of low-level bartending jobs or something in between hikes, or they're like the the ski bombs, or they're the the sort of rafting guides. There's people get referred to as dirtbags a lot. They're the people who, I guess, pursue their love of, of the outdoors and their love of a particular activity in the outdoors to the at the expense of other aspects of their life, whether that's like their jobs or their career paths or, or money or whatever it might be. I also think like one of the one of the things I talk about in the book, as you mentioned, it's sort of a there's a lifestyle element to it, but I I also think that one of the things that I came to realize as I was writing the book is that it's also, I think it's it's fair to label it as a counterculture. It's like a group of people who are rejecting a lot of the mainstream ways of pursuing life in favor of a different path. So they're kind of in the tradition of, of lots of other types of countercultures like the hippies and the, the punk rockers and those sorts of things. These are people who are forging their own path and, and rejecting the, the traditional options that are offered to them. 
And what's the history of dirtbagging? Is this a recent phenomenon or is this something that goes back a couple decades? Yeah, well, it's pretty interesting once you start digging into it. One of the questions I was trying to answer with the book initially was, where did this concept come from? And who were the first dirt bags? Who were the, how long have people been using this term in this sort of way? And there actually is a, there's a pretty, you can, you can kind of, kind of piece together the history of it. The first people who it seems like were really referred to in this way and, and sort of embraced it were a, a group of climbers in Yosemite in the 1950s and 60s. There's actually a, a decent, uh, actually a really good film about these guys called Valley Uprising that really tells the genesis story of this dirtbag community that I'm talking about. So these were these were essentially hippies in the, the 50s and 60s. They're like the proto-hippie, like Jack Kerouac types who were very intentional about the fact that they were like disappointing their parents by like not pursuing, <laughs> not pursuing a real job, but were going and living in like camps in in Yosemite and climbing all the time and these were these were rock climbers and these guys put up a lot of the the original roots in Yosemite they're kind of legendary in the the climbing community it's guys like Royal Robbins and Yvonne Chenard who was the founder of Patagonia is another guy who's associated with those early stage dirt bags and his book Let My People Go Surfing is another origin story about sort of how this dirt bag culture was developed and his his story is really about a, a trip to Patagonia and pursuing surfing at the expense of, of other things and just sort of the beauty in that. It's a term that we're not really sure. I'm not really sure anyway who used the term first. Actually, Yvonne Chenard gets credited with it. There are some some quotes from early on, like in the 60s or something, where he he like mentioned that these guys in Yosemite get get called dirt bags and they are a bunch of dirt bags, but but probably like the, he wasn't the first one to to use the term, but he was uh, one of the people that that definitely was influential in, in the concept spreading. So there's climbers, I think, like a lot of times climbers will be kind of protective of the term, like it's it, they own it or whatever. But as time's gone on in the last couple decades, really, well, I mean, it's been it's been 60 years now, I guess, really, people from all different aspects of the outdoor community have lived the same lifestyle, I guess. You know, my my introduction to dirt bagging has mostly been through through hiking and trail running. And through hikers are, are consummate dirt bags because they're people who, you know, to hike the Pacific Crest Trail or to hike the Appalachian Trail, it takes it takes five or six months for a lot of people. So you kind of have to organize at least one year of your life around it. So these are people who quit their sort of traditional path and pursue this sort of love of the outdoors. And people do that, you find across all the all the outdoor communities. There's dirt bag mountain bikers. Rafting guides are classic dirt bags, I think. They're another group of people that primarily, you know, they work summers and sometimes they they chase summers around the world ski bombs also are like the classic dirt bag types right there are people who are, who are just kind of chasing powder chasing winter around the world they're sort of organizing their whole life around this outdoor sport so what i think is is happened is like a lot of people with similar interests pursuing it in a slightly different way have all developed a, a similar approach to life for similar reasons and i think the term dirt bag has gotten applied to all of them at different times um, and in in sort of writing the book and looking at these different groups, thing that I kind of came to was the idea that this is the, really, it's best if you think about this as sort of a counterculture, even if a lot of the people in the counterculture wouldn't have necessarily identified that themselves. 
Well, so you mentioned you, you've become a dirtbag yourself. You weren't a climber. You got into the, the counterculture of dirtbagging through, through hiking. Uh, when did this happen? Like, and when did you, like, why did you decide? Was it sort of like a Saul on the road to Damascus, you know, instant conversion? Or did you like slowly find yourself becoming a dirtbag? Yeah, that story is kind of as long or as short as you want. I think there's a couple different things I would say about it. One is that I think that the outdoors and just kind of playing outside has always been an important part of my life. You know, I grew up in the country in Southern Ohio, so very much farm country, not the kind of place you would associate with rock climbing or mountain biking or hiking. Well, I mean, you know, we did a little bit of hiking, but, you know, not a lot of this sort of like West Coast, rich white people type outdoor activities, but was a lot of the playing in creeks and like shooting guns with my friends. And we did some hiking, we did some camping, we did some fishing, all those, those sorts of like Midwestern outdoor activities were always a big part of my life when I was young. And then an important Genesis point was we went, my, at the time, fiance, who's now my wife, did an exchange program in Australia for a quarter during her undergrad. And I went over there and we basically dirtbagged around for about a month while I was there on the East Coast of Australia. And that was very much sort of an eye-opening experience for sort of a, a kid from the small town Midwest, that the world's a really big place and there's a lot of cool places in it and you could spend a whole lifetime exploring. So so that planted the seed. After that, we, um, we did a lot of different things. We moved to New Zealand after we graduated from college and we spent a few years there and did a lot of hiking. And I did a master's degree that was focused on science and religion that was really focused in a way. I wasn't thinking of it in these terms at the time, but in a way it was focused on this. It was really the question of like how people find meaning and purpose in nature and the the world around them. So so that, you know, I kind of got into it academically. We got into trail running after we moved back to the States after the degree. That was um, that was in 2005. We, we moved to the Seattle area and we got really into trail and ultra running. Ultra running itself is basically a lifestyle because in order to train for for races that take all day, you basically have to spend all your time that you're not at work running. So, so you know, we got in the lifestyle of it there. And then I think the story I want to tell, though, is is that sort of genesis moment when I sort of connected the dots that this was a, a thing I was going to, I was focusing my life on versus just a thing that doing for fun. In 2015 is sort of when when the dots connected. We'd gotten into into trail running and had been pretty seriously into it for about five years by 2015. And we'd done a lot of really long races. We'd done 100-mile ultramarathons and a lot of sort of self-supported stuff. And we're just kind of looking for next steps. And in the trail running community, there's a lot of overlap with the thru-hiking community. You know, there's a lot of people who love being outside and love going long distances. So it's pretty, it's not surprising, I guess, that you also meet people who've done that for extended periods of time on, on these longer thru-hikes like the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail or the Continental Divide Trail or what have you. And so we, we met a fair number of people who'd, who'd hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. I mean, it sort of planted a seed for us. And in 2015, just sort of our lives lined up in a way that we were at a place financially where we could quit our jobs. We were both nurses, so career stability was not really that much of a concern. Like, great thing about nursing for this kind of lifestyle is you kind of quit a job and and come back to another one. And so anyway, in 2015, we decided that we were going to 
take the leap and quit our jobs and go hike the Pacific Crest Trail. We'd never done much long distance hiking like that. The longest I think we'd been out was probably three or four days before that. But this was a great next step for us after feeling like we'd done our thing with ultra running and looking for what's next. So we got our we got our schedule together and we were going to leave for the trail in April of 2015. And everything was all prepared. You know, I was heading towards my last day at work. And I got a call one day while I was at work that my dad had collapsed at his job and had gone into a seizure. My dad is not someone who'd ever had seizures. He was he was 62 at the time and he he never had a seizure in his life. And if you know anything about brain health, if you if you haven't had seizures early in life and you start to have them later, it's a really bad sign. There's essentially no good reason that that would happen. I mean, it's it's likely either a stroke or a tumor or something really serious. It took him it took him hours to get him out of the seizure. In the meantime, I was like planning flights back to Ohio, which is where he was at the time. Long Long story short, in that bit, we um, found out that he had glioblastoma, which is a really, it's both the most common and the most malignant type of brain cancer. It's a cancer that there's no, there's no remission for. It's, it's universally fatal. There's some treatments that can stretch out life, but there's no cure for it. So that was obviously a major shock that came at the same time that we were planning this trip. You know, it was within weeks of when we were planning to leave. And so we sort of were thrown into this, this crazy, what do we do now kind of mode. Essentially what we, what happened is my dad ended up getting a surgery um, that the docs said was, was largely successful. They were able to get most of the tumor out. They felt good about his prognosis. It was in a part of his brain that wasn't required for, for life-sustaining functions. You, you need your brain, no matter, um, no matter which part of it you need it. But there are some parts that you can survive without and some you can't. His was in the front. And so he got the surgery. The docs felt good about his prognosis. They felt like he was going to be around for a couple more years. And consulting with him and my mom, we decided that we were going to continue and go on to the PCT. Like they were pretty insistent on it. Actually, they'd been they'd always been part of this. My, my parents are very supportive, right? Like they've always been part of this process, and so they wanted us to go. They didn't want us to cancel plans for them. They wanted us to go, so that's what we did. So we started the trail, and they actually took us to the took us to the start. And it, it ended up being really the last time that I saw my dad healthy. This was about, like I said, this was about a month after his, his initial diagnosis. And so just a few weeks really after his surgery, but he was up and, and well enough to, to drive us from Las Vegas to the start. It's, but anyway, they dropped us at the start of the trail and we did the normal stuff you do on, on a through hike, which is realizing how hard it's going to be. I'm getting into the grind, getting into the the rhythm of like sleeping outside every night, figuring out how you resupply and you keep yourself fed and watered. You know, we walked through the, the California desert and we were kind of in the process, keeping track of what was going on with my dad and things were, things were progressing, but not, they didn't feel great. Right. Like he was, he got through his chemo. All right. He had some nausea and stuff. It wasn't, too terribly bad, but he was doing the things you would expect during like chemo and radiation. He was sleeping a lot. He was feeling tired, feeling kind of miserable, but generally things looked like they're supposed to look, I guess. You know, we would talk to mom and she'd always be like noncommittal about how he's doing. And he would, he would put on a brave face when we had talked to him as well. So we just kind of kept plugging along and keeping track of what was happening at home with them. The, the day after we hit the 
midway point for the PCT, we were, you know, the, the PCT runs through the mountains. So very frequently you don't have cell phone reception. So the day after we hit the midway point, we were walking towards the highway where we were going to hitchhike into town for our next resupply. And we started, you know, we turned on our phones because we we're getting back in cell phone service and we just started getting all these dings. And that's actually pretty ominous in that situation, right? Because we'd usually get one or two messages. And in this case, we're, you know, there's like 15 or 20 there. And so it was, it was immediately just had sort of this, this sense that things were off. Essentially the, there was a series of, of text and voice messages telling us that the uh, the cancer was back and the doctors had suggested another surgery and they were they were wanting to let us know and i think in that time like when when that that series of texts came in i just kind of knew that our trail was over like i that was sort of the sign when when the cancer came back that we were going to get off trail so we hiked our way into town we made a series of phone calls we talked to the doctors and i think as a family decided that it didn't make any sense to put dad through another surgery because the surgery wasn't gonna it was gonna make the quality of his life worse he might not make it through it and there was zero chance that it was gonna solve the situation it was at best gonna give him another month of life or something like that that would have been miserable and he would have had a a sort of healing brain during that period so he wouldn't have been even conscious during it so we basically made the decision that that he was you know we were not gonna treat and um, we made our way this was in we were sort of in central california so we made our way from central california to reno and then took a bus from reno down to las vegas where we spent the what ended up being the last couple weeks of my dad's life with him again the doctors initially had given a pretty optimistic prognosis i think saying that he you know could he might have six more months or something like that but what actually ended up happening is he passed away within a couple weeks you know, we were we were there during that process, obviously, and that was obviously. I think you know, for anybody who's who's lost a parent, you know, it's there's there's a weird sort of transition that happens for everyone when that happens. It's there's nothing that shocks you or hits you in the same way, and that's that's kind of what what we were going through. You know, alongside trying to support my dad through his suffering, it's like the loss of this of my parent. And in the meantime, we're in the middle of this giant hike. So after my dad passed away, we spent a few days with my mom and we we talked to my mom about next steps. And, and once again, like our initial plan was that we were going to just stay there in Vegas and talking with my mom, she was pretty insistent that we were not going to do that and that we were going to go back on trail. We made a plan together that she was going to, she was going to take us back to the start of the trail. And then she was going to, she was somebody who had always kind of wanted to do this kind of thing in life, but had, had never really done it. So she made a plan that she was going to train and get herself in shape and meet us at the end of the trail. She was going to hike in to the end of the PCT and, and meet us. It's about um, one of the funny things about the PCT is the actual terminus of the trail, the northern terminus of the trail, is at the U.S.-Canadian border, but the, the exit, the nearest road is still eight miles beyond there. So you have to hike another eight mi- miles once you get to the PCT before you actually finish. So my mom decided that she was going to train and go on her first backpacking trip ever and meet us at the end of the trail. And basically that's what she did. We got back on trail and because um, we'd had the delay with going down to be with my dad, we really had to like book it. So we <laughs> we took on really, got back our ultra running shoes on and, and bent two months hiking about 25 miles a day minimum to make it to the end of the trail by the time the snow fell. And so it became this major, like big epic 
quest, I guess, that that finished the way I, I guess we'd planned it, right? Like we made it by the end of September. My mom borrowed some some backpacking gear from some friends. She um, enlisted my uncle to join her and she hiked in sort of her first overnight backpacking trip and met us at the Northern Terminus. Uh, we sprinkled some of my dad's ashes there and then we uh, we came out of it. So this was sort of um, obviously a big life experience, right? And I think like there's there's a couple different things I'd say about it. The first is that I've, I've been thinking about through hiking a lot and about like the way it, it sort of shapes you. And traditionally, I think when people went on long walks, like if you were to put all your belongings on your back and hike for five months, at the end of that, you're going to be in a very different place from where you started, right? Like that's that's really migration, right? Like that's not just a thing people did recreationally, that's migration. And I think there's something, probably there's something hardwired into humans that when you do something like that, you just come out of it expecting that you're going to be changed by it and that you're going to sort of be in a different world than than the one where you started. And that's that's something that I think it happens pretty naturally. And, and most people, I think they're who through hike will will tell you that they were changed in some way or another by it. But the fact that this happened in the context of my dad dying and dying pretty young, I think the, the way it, it changed me was to get give me this sense that life is pretty short and it's not guaranteed at all. I mean, my dad had previously been entirely healthy. It'd probably been a decade since he'd been to the doctor before this, right? And so he it just really came out of nowhere and it just hit me and and my wife as well, I think, in a way that just just made us feel like we had to do the things we want to do in life. Um, we have to like think really hard about that and and pursue it because nothing's ever guaranteed. And that was really the experience. Um, that sort of comprehensive experience is what led us, I think, to be more intentional about pursuing the things that we love to do. And and. Ultimately, that's come down to travel and it's come down to uh, these sort of outdoor pursuits like hiking and we've taken up some kayaking and trail running and learning to mountain bike and sail at the moment. So just just sort of pursuing those things as more central things in our life. I think that that was, you know, there's almost a literal <laughs> road to Damascus thing there, right? Like, uh, but it was, it was pretty conscious at that point. Like, like I said, previously, we hadn't, I hadn't really thought in those terms. It was just stuff we're doing for fun. But after this, it was just sort of a, a very conscious, this is the lifestyle I'm going to pursue. Well, and you also, I mean, it's interesting with that story. Um, th- thanks for sharing that. That you, you, you talked to other people who are dirtbaggers and they had, a lot of them had similar stories of why they became dirtbaggers themselves. They had a, a big experience. Someone died, they got a sickness, they overcame, they lost a job, whatever. And they decided that was the thing that kind of, I don't know, shook them and said, I, I got to start doing the things that I, I really enjoy. And they end up being a ski bum or a through hiker or whatever. And it's amazing, like the different, like people from all walks of life. It was, you know, people who were once, you know, corporate CEOs or people who were just, they started doing that when they were in college and kept, kept going. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Well, let's, let's talk about, let's get, so this is this sort of big picture, like why people become dirtbaggers, you know, it might be a big life event that happens or they're trying to pursue, uh, there's a certain lifestyle they want to live, a philosophy they're trying to live out. But what I love about the book is how uh, brass tacks you get with it. Because I think a lot of people, they, they see those folks who are, you know, through hiking, they're just camping all the time, they're skiing all the time. And they think, man, that would be awesome, but I can never do that. And the first reason people give for not being able to you know, do that, you know, basically just make their whole life an adventure is money, specifically that they don't have enough money to live a life of adventure. 
But this book, you just say, you don't actually need that much money. So how much money do you actually need to live a dirtbag lifestyle? Yeah, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. That's um, it's it's a good question, and it's it's a very common reason people like look at these these sorts of lives and say like you know must be nice to be able to do that or must be nice to be able to afford that. But the one of the big driving points of the book, one of the big driving motivations, is that it shouldn't it shouldn't you shouldn't have to have a lot of money to have a good life and to put together a good life. And one of the big things that I think I've I've learned as we've sort of pursued these types of of things like traveling or, or through hiking or whatever is that you can actually you can do it on as as small of a budget or as big of a budget as you want, right? The thing I've I've sort of talked about is like really the goal, you know, sort of the lifestyle I talked about in the book is is about exploration, right? It's figuring out like how to sort of experience the world in its fullest and connect with the natural world around you in a in as direct a way as possible. And you can do that in a lot of different ways. So you can do that in the context of working a job and going out and being a weekend warrior, or you can do it in the context of drifting around. Central America or whatever and and surfing. There's a million different ways you can do it. So really there's a million different budgets you can do it on. It's it, it's very individualizable. Maybe the most uh, just just to give a little bit of concreteness to this. There actually are some pretty cheap ways that you can you can travel and, and adventure. Through hiking for us was a nice sort of nice wake up call in that regard because it really only costs about most people estimate it's about $1000 a month to through hike on a on a pretty normal budget. That's it's not nothing, but it's also actually not that much. You would spend most people in their day-to-day life are going to spend well over $1000. What happens is if you choose to live a life where you you sleep outside every night and you eat out of grocery stores and that's really your only expense, like that actually narrows down your cost pretty significantly. So through hiking is a pretty accessible way to travel and adventure financially. Another thing is is a big part of our sort of adventure story is is always been around traveling. And there are a lot of places in the world where if you can if you can save up to get a ticket, you can survive on not much money at all once you get there. We spent about four months traveling around Latin America after we hiked the PCT. And and again, it was our budget down there was really only about a thousand dollars a person a month. So that looked like essentially busing around, staying in Airbnbs or hostels, checking out beaches, going on hikes, doing low-key stuff, but just doing it in cheap countries. So again, that thousand dollars a month is is like a good number for somebody who, if you're you know, I'm not, we're budget travelers, but I'm not like crazy budget travelers. So I think that's very doable. A lot of it really depends on where you're going and what you're doing. I talk a lot about career and and sort of how you earn your money as well. And one of the things to think about is that going on adventures and these sort of big epic trips are not exclusive of work either. I think that that's a sort of misnomer is that people just play outside all the time. And that's, that's typically not the case, right? Like people are typically working when they're doing this and you can, the world is, populated by hostile working like 22 year olds with no money at all who are surviving basically just on on room and board from the hostel and and checking out like Bolivia or whatever while they're doing it you know ski fields are populated by ski bums who make a couple bucks an hour running lifts or whatever but get the perk of being able to do what they love on the weekends or on their time off there's costs associated but there's also ways that you can figure out how to do it even if you don't have you're not starting with much money at all well yeah I love you you in the section of on finances you lay out some like rules that I think they're they not only apply to like 
you know, allowing Olivia the dirt back life. They're just good financial rules. Like, for example, you know, start with what you have rather than what things cost. So instead of thinking about, I need to buy, I need to go to REI and buy all this cool stuff. It's like, well, what do I got already in my garage that I can use? Other other great tips, go where you can afford. You, you're talking about that. It's no brainer. Things simplify, cut other things you don't care about. I mean, this this not, I mean, what I loved about it was not only applicable to, you know, live in a dirtbag lifestyle, but this is just good financial advice for just your life in general? Honestly, most of our financial savvy came from my wife. And my wife was raised in a relatively, I mean, both of us were raised very like sort of working class, but she was, she was raised in relative poverty. And she learned from like her grandma, who was a bank teller her whole life and raised a family on that income, like how to get the most out of the money you've got and how not to to waste it, you know? And so really, honestly, most of the financial advice in the book was stuff that that basically we picked up along the way from just the experience of of having to do that. You know, a million things you can take from people who figure out how to how to get through life without much money that you can apply in in a situation that's that's focused on trying to adventure more, right? Well, it was going back to this idea of career. So some dirtbags, they find careers that suit their their, their adventure choice. So if you're into skiing, you become a ski bum, you work the ski lifts. If you're a, a surfer, you become maybe a surf instructor, then you can surf, whatever. But besides that, what are some other ways that you saw that people were you know, making money, having a career while still embracing this uh, life of adventure? Yeah, totally. Because I mean, you have to get through life, right? You know, you, you, you have to figure out how to make money. And, and career is basically that. I think one of the things I think is important, it's been important for me anyway, is to think about career and sort of what you want to do in life as separate entities. They, they overlap sometimes, but they're not necessarily always the same thing. Sometimes your career or your job is just the way you make money. And if you're wanting to like figure out how to make money while also spending a lot of time, taking a lot of time off, spending a lot of time exploring, you, you, you can think in a lot of different directions. Like you said, you can do the obvious thing and become a guide and do that for a living, but sometimes you don't want to, you know, sometimes that kills it anyway. So some people just aren't, you know, not really people persons. So they don't necessarily want to do that. So you think about like finding a career that is going to be it's not going to raise eyebrows if you take a lot of time off or that's contract based and it's sort of built in that you're going to have time uh, to yourself to do other things. And, and there's a lot of different, there's a surprising number, I think, of, of jobs like that. You know, when we're living in the Seattle area, there were just a ton of tech workers who were kind of in that boat, right? Like they take Microsoft contracts and they'd work on a project for a year and a half and then they'd, they'd you know, be done and they could do whatever they want before they took their next contract. I work, like I said, I work in nursing and healthcare is fantastic for that. There's there's so many jobs and so many different types of contracts you can take that it's it's pretty normal to take a three-month contract and and then take some time off afterwards. Like there's a whole culture around it in nursing and and in lots of different healthcare fields. I've known people who are various types of of healthcare techs who've done that sort of thing. The first time I actually encountered this kind of approach to life was like when I was working construction for a summer after college. And um, I met a bunch of union electricians who they would have, you know, they would have jobs intermittently. So they'd, they'd be working on a job for 
you know, eight months or whatever. And then over the winter, they wouldn't have any work. And so they would fly somewhere cheap. They would like fly to Thailand or they would fly to Mexico or whatever. And they would just hang out there for a few months waiting for their, their next job. Because it was like, one, it was, it was an amazing life experience. And two, it was like actually cheaper to do that than to stay at home. There's a lot of different, there's a lot of different jobs that are actually pretty well set up for this kind of thing. There definitely are some that are better than others, right? Like I mentioned that I did a master's degree and I was thinking about academics and one of the whole reason that I quit that track is I realized it was going to absorb my whole life and I didn't want my whole life to be devoted to my job. There are some jobs that it's harder to do this with than others. If you're young, you've got an advantage because you can pick a career path that's going to be more amenable to doing the things you actually like and the lifestyle you want. Well, and again, so yeah, you have to think outside of the box here when it comes to your career. It's like, if, you know, if you want to be a trial lawyer, pr- I mean, probably going to be hard to do, become a, be a dirtbag and that, do that at the same time. But that's okay. I mean, because you, yeah. you find something you want yeah. to do. All right. Okay. So I think another reason, and you talk about this in the book, that people feel squeamish about becoming a full-time adventurer is that it like it doesn't feel responsible. Like you're becoming a, you're, you're becoming a bum, right? Like you're just skiing. That's all you do. What's your response to this reluctance? Yeah, I think this is a, a big one, right? People think about like responsibilities. It's a really vague term, right? Like you're like, oh, I've just got, I've got too many responsibilities. Like, what does that even mean? And there's, there's a couple different things. Like, I think it's, it's worth pointing out. One of them is that a lot of the things that people think of as responsibilities are actually just social expectations and they don't actually they're not actually things that you should or have to do this gets right into that concept that like dirtbagging these people are basically part of a counterculture because the counterculture in a way is critiquing a lot of like traditional notions of what it means to be a a responsible adult. Being a responsible adult doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have, you have to own a house or you have to have nice clothes or you have to pursue a certain type of career or you have to provide all the best in terms of financial and material things for your kids. Like those things aren't responsibilities in the sense that they aren't things that you actually should or have to do. And I think actually some of those social norms that are thought of as when people think of the term responsibility are actually super destructive, not just for like individuals, but they're, they're, they're part of what's driving the destruction of the, the natural environment that we live in and overconsumption and, you know, this sort of disconnect from, from the people around us and the, the environment around us. Like some of those, some of those responsibilities are actually things that, I think are healthy to, to kind of attack and critique. And um, one of the things I talk about, and one of the ways I think about this is that dirtbags are kind of like monks and nuns in the sense that they're the people who are practicing this approach to life in the most extreme ways, right? And they're sort of learning things and communicating things that other people can learn from. They might, you know, quitting your job and traveling for two years might be something that most people aren't going to do. But the people who do do it, they learn things about life that are going to be really valuable to other people around them. So, So that's one of the ways I think about like how this sort of lifestyle can be responsible is it's it's actually communicating something important to the world and you're you're learning important things about life that other people gain from another way another thing i talk about though is that 
the stuff that you actually should be responsible for, you know, there are things, there are things you should do in life. Treat other people with respect. You should, you know, meet your financial obligations. If you've got debts, you should pay them off. If you, um, you know, you should be a decent person. You should contribute to your community, all those sorts of things. But there's no reason at all that you can't do those things in the context of also like pursuing your passions. If exploration is your passion, like pursuing that is an entirely responsible thing to do that you can, that the world will gain from. Gotcha. So, okay. I think that's a good distinction. Be, yeah, make sure you make a distinction between actual responsibilities and just social conventions. But that, yeah, that social convention, that could, st- that could still be hard to overcome, right? Because your people are just like, man, this doesn't, this is not what you're supposed to do, but you know, it, who says, right? I think it should feel weird to, you know, live, live in like a way that critiques the sort of mainstream approach to life. Like it should feel weird because those things are the things that are ingrained and it's a hard thing to do. And it's never, it's never clear. There's a lot, always a lot of fuzziness. What are the shoulds in life? I think all of us are trying to figure that out as we go along. All right. Let's talk about relationships and living the dirtbag lifestyle. So these early dirtbaggers, they're probably bachelors. They had their buds, but they I imagine they weren't married or had girlfriends or whatever. Is dirtbagging conducive to relationships? Yeah, I mean that's that's another that's another big one. And I, I think in the book I, I definitely there's a little bit of a reality check with that one where I'm like, yeah, actually if you choose to go pursue some path in life that's that's focused on that's that's going to take you outside of normal social circles, it's going to take you, you know, you're going to travel a lot and those sorts of things. It is going to impact your relationships, and and there's some some relationships that won't survive that. And that's I think that that just is a reality. It's a thing that I've experienced myself as we've moved around. You do just lose some connections. The internet has made maintaining connections across the distance way easier, but but it's still, you know, you're still not seeing the same people on a, a day-to-day basis. But I mean, the flip side of that is when you do this sort of stuff, you also meet other people who are doing the same. I think of it in a lot of ways, like any interest. If you become an engineer, you're going to meet lots of other engineers. If you become an adventurer, you're going to meet lots of other adventurers. So one of the things I talk about in the, the book is the concept that cool begets cool. The, the general idea is if you do cool stuff and if you pursue stuff you're passionate about, you're going to meet lots of other people who are doing the same and you're going to build new relationships with them and you guys are going to inspire each other to do even cooler stuff. Talk a, a little bit about marriages and relationships and that sort of thing. And, and, and those are tricky ones. Like family relationships, I think, are the trickiest because you don't necessarily, you don't always have the same interests as your family members. And I've been, I've been super lucky that Angel, my wife, and I both are really into this kind of thing. And so we've spurred each other along. It's one of the reasons I think we've been able to build our life around it in a way that um, a lot of people wouldn't. We both kind of want to do it. You know, it's true. There's some people who their their partner really doesn't want to, they don't want to spend all weekend, every weekend running ultra marathons, or like they don't want to take six months off and go bus around Europe or whatever. It's just not their thing. And so those are, are trickier to manage. And then if you add kids into the, the equation, it's a total crapshoot. At least with your partner, you know a little bit about them before you form a relationship with kids. Who knows what they're going to be like? It is true. It, it, it impacts you. And it is, I think it is... Um, it's one of those responsibility things too. I think that I think that if you have kids and it's best for them to, 
be in a, a, a situation at home or, or continue with their school or whatever, you know, it is irresponsible to not provide that support for them. So there are, there are ways in which relationships should and do impact on, on the choices you make, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't spend, don't focus your life on, on the things that you care about and think are important and figure out how to do those in, in different ways. It just means that your life looks different. Well, and you're thinking about the kids, you actually encountered people who were living the dirtbag lifestyle with kids. I think there's like a, a lady, I think, was, I think she might've been a single mom, had like six kids or something. And she was like hiking a through trail with like yeah, all yeah. her kids and like, she's making it work. It was like, Hey, good for yeah. her. Yeah. It's, it's our friend, Amy, who we actually, we just kind of met her actually randomly in Seattle. We didn't meet her through, through hiking, but she hiked most of the Appalachian Trail with two twins and uh, so two young sons and then two daughters. And one of her daughters has Down syndrome. So she's she's figured it out, right? Like if she can figure that out, I think her sons were six or seven when they started the trail. One of them finished, one of them didn't. Um, but if she can figure out, like a lot of people can figure it out. We have friends who right now are are traveling around with two young sons and they they basically don't have a home base. They just kind of travel to different parts of the world for like a month or two at a time and they run an online business and and they're raising their kids on the road. Another woman who I actually grew up with in Ohio, I found out after I wrote the book actually has been traveling in an RV with her, I think she has three kids and her husband for for years, just to different parts of the country, homeschooling, living on the road. So there's people who figure it out, you know, more power to them. And and I we haven't had children and, and it's definitely made decisions less complicated, but people clearly do figure it out. And every family is going to have different strategies that are, are good for them and work for them. But, but yeah, totally. People figure out how to live some pretty crazy lives. Boat people are great for that too. You know, hang out, hang around a marina and you're going to meet families full of people who are like sailing around the world and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Well, so, okay. Dirtbagging can ha- have adverse effects on your pre-dirtbag relationships, like friends, family before. You're, you're just going to lose touch with them because you're going to be gone, all possibly be gone a lot. But as you said, you're going to be introduced to a new community. And like that community of dirt fellow dirtbaggers, they can help you make like the, like kind of ease the financial burden, right? Because then you start sharing stuff with each other and they start sharing tips or they, you crash at their place for whatever long when you're visiting them. So that community that that's there can actually make this easier for you. I think that that's that's one of the things. Once you start meeting people who are into this kind of thing, you know, it, it's it's a very supportive community. It's a web of people around the world, really. After the after the trip to Latin America in 2016, we've like spent most of our our time with a, a general base in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle and then Tacoma. But we've we've been on the road for as long as much as we we've not. And we tend to crash at people's houses that we know. Um, we, we either free camp or we crash at people's houses. And so I've, the amount of money I've saved just from having cool, supportive friends, it's, it's, it's been in the tens of thousands of dollars just over the last few years just because people are supportive. And we try and do the same thing. If we can let people borrow our house or our car if we're not using it, like we're going to do it. Um, because, yeah, I think it's, it's part of the way that you support each other as people are trying to live cool lives. Like I said, when you start doing this, like some of the coolest people I've met have been through, through hiking. We've met lots of other cool people through sailing events we've sort of gone along for. You just meet people who live cool lives. And as you start to do that, you build a network of people all over the place that you can connect in and stay with. 
Well, let's circle back. So one of the things that you, you talked about earlier in your story becoming a dirtbag was um, one of those points was your master's thesis on finding meaning in nature. And you have a section on this about how to build a meaningful life around the dirtbag lifestyle. And it sounds to me like, oh yeah, I'm going to go and live my passion and whatever, be out in the outdoors doing things that I love. But you highlight, there's sort of a dark side. There can be a dark side to the dirtbag lifestyle. Um, for example, I read this article too. You highlighted there's the National Geographic talked about in ski towns. There's like been an uptick in suicides from, you know, there from just people, guys who, guys who identify themselves as ski bums. What's going on there? Like, what do they think that's going on there? Personally, I, I kind of experienced this myself. So I mentioned that we hiked the PCT in 2015. And in 2016, we took um, an extended trip to Latin America. And when we weren't there, we were we were mostly traveling around the, the American West. And after a year, a year or so, I just really felt pretty empty. And just this sense that we were, I was like spending my life drifting around looking at pretty things, which is is great for a week or two, even a month. But after a while, you start to feel like, like, what in the world am I even doing with my life? Like, why am I doing this? And I think um, that's one of the big traps with, with pursuing something that's like a passion or recreational or even something that across time, you're going to lose your ability to do. Like, it's one of the things with skiing and those types of sports. As you get older, you just physically lose the capacity to do it. Either you get injured or you just the natural process of aging. And if you've been centering your life on that stuff, that can trigger some pretty intense midlife crises. If you hit a point where this thing that you really have centered your life around, you can't do anymore. It's it's true that I the National Geographic article said there was data saying that there's like suicide rates are higher in ski towns and kind of conjecture on my part. But I would imagine that that's basically the dynamic. You have these old ski bombs. This has been their life and now they can't do it. So they they don't figure out how to make the transition. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about that in the book is because I actually think it is it is an essential. Right? The, the book itself is really focused on like, how do you manage to live a good life and do the things that you really need to do to survive in this context, in a sort of dirtbagging context. And, and I do think that actually having a sense of meaning and purpose in life is, is an essential because eventually you'll either give up on the lifestyle or you'll just give up on life in general. And neither one of those really is... is neither of those is a good outcome. There's a really good book that I, I used as a framework uh, for my chapter by a writer named Emily Esfahani Smith that's called The the Power of Meaning. And it's it's basically about this concept. It's about the question of like how do human beings develop a sense of meaning and purpose in life. And the thing I like about it is a lot of times when you think about like meaning and purpose, it all is very like ethereal. It's like spiritual and like it doesn't mean anything. It, the, the book is basically based on a series of interviews she did with people who reported having a strong sense of meaning in life. And she looks at the things that they did and have that helped to produce that. And so she gives some really practical guidelines and directions. And and I think like the, the things that she comes to are really useful to think about and they're true for anybody. So they're true for people if they're sort of working their nine to five and, and they're just as true for someone who decides to sit out on the ocean and spend their life sailing, you know, between Pacific islands. So the things she talks about for the ways that people maintain a sense of meaning 
are one, they have a sense of community connection. So they have a sense of belonging and a, a place in the world. Building a community of people, even if you're even if you're sort of drifting around, building a community of people that you feel connected to and, and having a, a clear sense of how you fit into it. Then there's also a need to feel like you have a purpose and in a very specific kind of way, right? Like uh, you feel like you're useful to the world. Like I think that's a that's a, a thing that I come to a, a lot is if you're feeling like just not sure what your direction is in life, you, you just figure out ways to make yourself useful. It's, it's having that sense of, of that you have a a purpose in the world that's like very concrete, like you're doing something beneficial for the world. She talks about a sense of transcendence, which is uh, the sense of having a connection beyond yourself. You know, again, transcendence, that's a very like sort of very, very kind of word. But really what she's talking about is feeling a connection to the world around you, whether that's your community, whether that's um, the natural world, um, whether that's like some sort of religious connection. People who feel like their life is purposeful have a sense of connection to transcendence. And like personally, I think this one is, is very natural to a lot of people who are in the community, like the sort of outdoors community. A lot of people go out into the wilderness and into the mountains or into the woods on a regular basis because they have this sense of bigness and transcendence and they're part of something that's much bigger than themselves. So that's one that I think outdoor recreation is, it's so popular because it gives people that sense of transcendence in a way that a lot of other things don't. Then finally, she talks about like storytelling. Basically, she's just saying you have to be able to think through your story, your own personal story, and, and place it in the context of the world. You have to be able to make sense of how your life fits into the bigger picture. And that's really what telling your own story is about, is like, it's being able to make sense from a story perspective of like how you fit into the world. So, so all those things, I guess, are, are things that, you know, that's not very specific, but it's, I think it's, a, it's good because like, Throughout life, you're going to have to think of how to cultivate a sense of meaning. And, and the way to do it is to think about the different things that will actually provide that sense of meaning. And, and those things you can work out in a lot of different ways in a lot of different contexts. So what did you do personally when you were feeling that sort of existential funk after you had, you know, after the, the tour of the, the, the American West? Like, What did you do to inject some more meaning into your, your life? Yeah, good question. So um, one of them I went, basically, I went back to my job as a mental health nurse. So that is definitely, definitely one of the things where I feel like I'm providing some value to my community. Um, I worked for about 10 years as a mental health nurse. So, so I went back to that and I started working more shifts there. And then my wife, one of the things I haven't talked about is like my wife started a business called Boldly Went that was really, it was focused on holding events in the outdoor community where people could tell their stories. And then we created um, a podcast and, and sort of online content coming out of those stories. So building that business was another way that we definitely started to recultivate a sense of like meaning and purpose and direction. And have you, I mean, I imagine you encountered a lot of people out on the trail who were, they, they were basically just trying to escape from something, like escape from life and, they weren't really trying to embrace something constructive or meaningful. Like, how do you how do you make sure that if you decide I'm going to become a Pacific, I'm going to become a through trail hiker, that you're not just running away from your problems and you're actually trying to turn towards something constructive? That's a good question. I think that human beings are pretty good about like instinctually recognizing when something's wrong in their situation and something needs to be done, but they're not always that good at figuring out what to do in response. And I think you're right that there there are a lot of through hikers out there who like life has just been a mess 
And so they go on the trail to try and solve it. And I think that's true with a lot of um, escapist kind of things, right? Like if you travel internationally too, and you get on the backpacker circuit, you're going to meet those kind of people as well, who are just basically like home sucked, stuff went really sideways. So now, you know, now, now I'm in Ecuador and I don't know what I'm going to do when I go back. It's, it's kind of tricky. And I think part of the process itself helps a lot of people figure out what to do next. The general process of travel, the general process of doing something physical, a lot of times, a lot of people sort out their problems on the run. A lot of people sort out their problems while they're traveling. So I think it's, I think it's a good prescription when there is something wrong for a lot of people just to do it and see where it goes. But yeah, but I think that, it, again, it comes back to that, that question of responsibility. If you're running away from doing things that you should do or doing things that you need to do, then you're going down the wrong path. You have to figure out how to, how to address those things, how to confront those things, whether that's like problems in relationships or if it's financial problems or whatever. You have to figure out how to address those things. A lot of times what that comes down to is finding something meaningful to replace those relationships or, or drug addictions or whatever with is finding something better to replace it with moving a healthier direction it's a good it's a good question it's 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 not a not an easy question but yeah I, I think these types of these types of processes can be part of the the answer well Tim uh, where can people go to learn more about the book and your work yeah so the easiest place to find the book is on Amazon you know as it's true of pretty much everything in the world. So yeah, Dirtbag's Guide to Life, Eternal Truth for Hiker Trash, Ski Bums and Vagabonds. It's, it's on Amazon. It'll be on a bunch of other sites as well, pretty much wherever you buy your books. And then I've recently launched a blog called dirtbagsguide.com that's focused on sort of continuing to write on some of the same themes that were in the book, but you know, just trying to make sense a little bit of the 2020 context as well. And I have an Instagram account that's just, if you just search Dirtbag's Guide to Life, that'll pop up. But I'm not that great at keeping that up and I'm kind of over social media marketing. So, (laughs) (laughs) but you can go to Instagram too. And then my wife and I's business is called Boldly Went Adventures. It's uh, boldlywentadventures.com. There's about four years of podcasts there that are stories from all types of, of people in the outdoor community, a lot of blog content, that sort of thing that people can check out as well. Fantastic. Well, Tim Mathis, thanks for his time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It's great. My guest there is Tim Mathis. He's the author of the book, The Dirtbag's Guide to Life. It's available on amazon.com. You can find out more information about his work at his website, boldlywentadventures.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash dirtbag, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AWIM podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AWIM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code manliness at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AWIM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, Thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.